Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of the We Belong Here podcast powered by Civic Commons. I'm your host, Frank Naum, and I am the project manager for We Belong Here. Thank you once again to The Big Phony, who has uh, provided music for our intro and outro. Uh, good friend of mine. Uh, check him out on Bandcamp. Uh, I'm really excited today. We have three guests. Uh, they're all friends of mine, and they all don't work in the same sector, but they all work on the power of belonging and how to include others. And so I'm going to give them a chance to introduce themselves uh, in a couple sentences. Then we'll do some longer intros, and then we'll talk about our projects. So first up, we have Shannon Lowe. Shannon, why don't you uh, tell us about yourself? I am an entrepreneur in real estate. I joke that I try to give real estate a good name. I'm an architect and a developer, and I create companies that use place and real estate to have positive social impact. That's included a large kind of broad scale design company that has consulted to others for about 13 years, uh, but most recently is creating Hatchback. And Hatchback is a turnkey solution for homeowners to have backyard cottages on their property. It's a mission-driven company, so we focus on increasing housing while providing options for families, including supplemental income, aging in place, and inviting more strangers into their backyard. Uh, Amy, how about you? I actually work for the city of Seattle. I work for the Seattle Department of Transportation. I have a very long title. I am the program development supervisor for public space management. But how I really like to describe what I do is I get to reimagine public space. And I get to work with communities, individuals, businesses, and thinking around how we can spill into the right of way, how we spill into sidewalk and sidewalks and streets. And one of the things that I talk about when I think around public space is I really love to think around how public space is democratizing. And in this world where we curate everything, we choose who we interact with, it's a pay-to-play model. Public space in my mind is where we get to interact with people that we wouldn't in any other context. That's who I am. That's what I do. I love place. I, in many ways, have a dream job right now because that's all I think about is public space. Wonderful. Well, talking about dream jobs, let's uh, switch over to Laura. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I identify as a social impact instigator. Uh, I've spent the majority of my career at the intersection of business and society and have a longtime passion for harnessing business resources and influence in support of things that matter. Most recently, I founded and lead a social purpose corporation called Intentionalist. At Intentionalist, we believe people matter and that everyday decisions that we make about where we eat, drink, and shop have the potential to shape and build community in really powerful ways. What Amy said about public spaces was deeply resonant. It's my hope and my experience that small businesses as third places can also offer opportunities to connect with and develop relationships with people whose lived experiences and backgrounds might be different from our own. Um, and whether it's over a cup of coffee or tea, or whether it's through learning about a local maker behind a piece of jewelry, 
I think small businesses are fundamentally about the people behind them. And that as we get to know and learn about those people, the stories that they bring to the work that they do, it's an opportunity to be a part of the kind of community and city uh, where I think we all want to live, work, and play. Wonderful. Thank you for uh, sharing a little bit about yourselves. You'll have a chance to talk more at length about who you are and what shaped you. And I am going to share a question that I would love for all of you to answer. And that question is, I talk about belonging as uh, the allegory of stone soup as a metaphor for belonging. So for the three of you, uh, if belonging is a soup that we all share ingredients to and bring things forth, what would you, what would your ingredient be into the soup of belonging? And so we'll start in reverse order and we'll have Laura go first. My ingredient would be empathy. I would bring empathy because I think that empathy requires awareness. It requires connection. It requires understanding and it requires proximity and relatedness. And as I think about inclusive spaces and as I think about my personal journey and experience with belonging, but also for the work that I do in gendering greater inclusion and belonging, I think that is empathy that's rooted in curiosity and understanding of one another that hopefully allows us not only to more deeply appreciate our differences, but in some instances, to bridge those differences as well. When you think about the elements of soup, it seems like the stock, that empathy built into the stock of the soup. And that's a great answer. Thank you. Amy, what would you add as, <laughs> as an ingredient? I have to follow empathy? Oh my God, I know I about this one. <laughs> um, when I think about belonging, I think about first and foremost, connection and memory. But I'm going to answer this from a very like food-centric lens because when I think about connection and memory, it's very scent-based for me. I'm first-generation Vietnamese, and we are very herbal forward with our food. But I think that a lot of cultures are very herbal forward. Personally, I would contribute lemongrass to the belonging of soup. I kind of encourage in this idea of, of, and soup is so wonderful, right? Because what is soup? Soup is warming, soup is nourishing. And when we break down those words, it often, like the physical dimension of that is family, right? And it's ancestry. So I would say lemongrass, and I would encourage everybody to find your herb. I think that an herbaceous soup of belonging is fantastic. <laughs> I like that we started with the stock and then we went straight into how do you actually flavor the soup? What are those like uh, really key things that you top that soup off and like build that into the stock? And I love that you use layers of flavor. So many like and lemongrass. Oh, what a great, great flavor and great herb. Shannon, you have the unenviable task of going last. Uh, so what would you put into your belonging soup? Probably throw in some cilantro just because I happen to love that just to be literal and specific for a moment. Although I know that can be polarizing because some people find it tastes like soap. But if we're all coming together, I guess we have to be empathetic to everybody's tastes. <laughs> sounds reasonable. I think, you know, when, when I heard this question, the first thing that I actually thought of was actually this wonderful experience that I had at a friend's wedding. I had 
fabulous fortune of, of flying to see a friend from college marry in Spain. And they had a, at, at least what I understand to be a fairly traditional paella cookout. It was just a lovely setting. But there was the, the, the enormity of community coming together to collaboratively make this dish. Now, there was a cook and a chef, and we were guests, and we weren't helping to cook. So we weren't literally doing that. But this ginormous thing of paella is what brought everybody together. And so there's something that's for me, the answer to this is less about the ingredient and more just about uh, coming together around some enormous cauldron. Nice. I uh, took Spanish in elementary school of all places, and then again in high school. But the, one of the things I remember most from Spanish class was not conjugation or you know, vocabulary. It was the paella that our teacher made for us one, uh, one day. And that was amazing. I'll answer this question too in a way that's not so much an ingredient either, but I think the thing that kind of ruins soup is the idea that there isn't enough enough soup for everyone. And so the idea of scarcity sometimes can ruin a soup and have people hoard uh, soup and so or, or resources. And so I would love for people to realize that, that there's actually enough ingredients, that we have enough empathy, that we have enough lemongrass, that we have enough, enough cilantro for those who want it to bring together, right? And so like this feeling of like bringing people together and creating connections like there's enough for us to do that without people having to worry that there isn't enough of those resources we have enough of those resources available i know thinking about you know belonging as a soup is kind of like an interesting exercise but i think it makes a lot of sense you know it's really nourishing it's feeding and it's like bringing people together making paella making soup making kimchi jjigae like whatever it is and so thank you for answering those questions what we're going to do next, and this is kind of on uh, Marshall Gans's framework around uh, narratives, is we're going to have each of you talk about yourselves and share your story of self. I think when you bring in people, and I know you kind of know of each other, but no, I don't think any of you know each other very well. And so how do you actually create connection? And one of that is to make sure you don't allow people to be erased. And so by telling your own story in your own words, we get to hear who you are. Uh, and that's, that's just a really powerful way to connect. And, and our theory is that when more people do that, the power of collaboration actually increases and magnifies. Yeah. So with that being said, and just tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll have Shannon, and then we'll have Laura. The arc of my life thus far is very much defined by place. As I kind of said in my previous answer, I'm first-generation Vietnamese um, Grew up in White Center, uh, which is a wonderful neighborhood. I grew up in a really rich immigrant enclave that I just kind of assumed that everybody got to eat fabulous food and run around to different houses and that everyone spoke at least two or three languages, you know? <laughs> and I think that that was another kind of defining place for me. I remember in the 2000s, we were talking about um, gentrification already. I remember my friends who became the last Black families on their blocks. And I moved to New York uh, City for, for college, and I ended up living in New York for um, several years. I did my undergrad and master's there. And I found myself navigating and gravitating to neighborhoods like Sunset Park, Brooklyn, that I called home for for a while. And if folks aren't familiar with Sunset Park, it's the Chinatown of Brooklyn. And it's really fantastic. It's like you have this 
huge Chinatown, and then there's Puerto Ricans on one side, Dominicans, and then you have Eastern Europeans. So I found myself coming back to that, like that hunger and craving within place that I have. And it wasn't until, you know, studying urban studies and studying urban policy and planning that I learned the like academic way to describe my fascination with what I was experiencing. But who I am is very much defined by place and the interactions that I've had within these places. Um, Something that I think about quite often is when I lived in Sunset Park, I lived on 56th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. I'm very specific here because I want any New York listeners to, to understand. And on that block, the idea of stoop culture, that life happened, happens on the stoop. And we had a matriarch for our block. Our matriarch was Helen. Helen had lived in Sunset Park for 60 years. I mean, Helen knows everybody's name. You know, you walk past, she knows. She knows your kids. She knows the dogs. She knows who's fighting. She knows, like, she knows what's up. She knows when things are going down. And through her, I learned that power of what it is. In many ways, many folks would look at a life like that and say, "You haven't left this block." And I hear it and I see, wow, how you are the fabric that's holding this together. And after I left New York, I went to the South. I went to New Orleans. And in New Orleans, I, I learned an entirely different love because New Orleans turns on its head what is public space. All space is public. Nothing is private. All your shotguns spill out in the street. There's more festivals than there are days of the week. I worked for a wonderful woman named Jackie Summel who founded Herman's House, um, which is an organization that challenges the prison industrial complex through art. And what she taught me again is, about place, but about relationships. And I'll never forget those days. I worked in this, the back of this woman's house in a shed with beautiful dogs running around me and children laughing in the ninth ward and like hip hop blaring. And it was like, and everybody knew each other. And, and I felt Helen again. (laughs) I felt my childhood again to kind of continue on this arc of place. I found myself later on living in um, Medellin, Colombia for a bit. My mom ended up moving down there. I helped her move down there. It's the only time since I was started working when I was 12 that I never had a I didn't have a job. So I was for months I would just take the bus around and sit in plazas and get my ass kicked by old Colombian men in during chess because I just love playing chess and I butchered the Spanish language, but I also learned so much around the beauty of plaza culture and community that exists when you don't curate and manicure it. It's just the beauty that emerges. So the reason why I use these examples of place to ground who I am is I think about the state and where Seattle is now. And I you know, we hear so often about Seattle freeze and how tech and the rapid change within the city. And as someone who has left for many years and came back home, I'm very much interested in what does, what is Seattle culture? What culture is under attack? And is there a way for us to not so much hold on to what was, but to be able to think about what can be? I just love the fact that you talk about like white center and like neighborhoods and like and physical structures like plazas and stoops 
And I love this idea of plaza culture. I want to go someplace and just live amongst plaza culture. I've been to like Edinburgh and I've sat on some really cool plazas there. I've been in Manhattan. I've like, there's some great parks and plazas, but yeah, I, Seattle does need to kind of like figure out what is with the rapid change. What is our story? What is our place? And how does, how does we connect people to place, even if it's changing quickly? And that's really tough. And so thank you for that. Laura, I would love to hear you talk about yourself uh, at length. Yeah, tell us more about who you are. There are bullets about where I was born. I was born in Seoul, Korea. I was adopted when I was six months old. You know, bullet points about my family. I come from a biracial family. My mom is Japanese American from the island of Kauai. My dad is a white guy from Seattle. And I have lots of deep connection to and feelings of belonging and identity associated with my family, um, even though I'm a Korean adoptee. But to center my story around belonging is a little bit complicated, or at least it feels complicated because I've struggled with belonging for as long as I can remember. And not as one might posit because I was adopted, but more so because despite having an incredibly loving and supportive family and extended family, when it came to my peers and the people around me through kind of the critical years of adolescent identity formation, there was no belonging. I didn't feel like I fit into Asian or POC communities um, on the one hand, because half my family was white. um, And on the other, because I was gay, I was super nerdy and played sports and played the piano, but really struggled to fit in. Didn't have very many friends, even though what I wanted desperately was to feel seen and to feel wanted and to feel valued. And what's really interesting about this kind of foundational formational struggle is the way that it has subconsciously and more recently consciously shaped the way that I approach the world and my work and where I find passion. As somebody who struggled with feeling accepted, my workaround um, was to get really good at doing. Um, I was was and am a really good doer. I can identify problems and brainstorm solutions, and I'm the person that you can count on when everybody else you've called for whatever reason is busy or hasn't picked up the phone. I think that as a result of my struggle with belonging, two things that have been really powerful drivers in my journey, uh, professional and otherwise, have to do with letting people know that they matter and showing up. I know that in a busy world, we believe and we feel and we value a lot of things. And I think in part in my own effort 
to personally matter. I've honed showing up and translating intentions into actions and draw strength from that. Um, I spent the majority of my career uh, working in really large corporations as an entrepreneur. A lot of times people assume that entrepreneurs always wanted to be entrepreneurs or always wanted to be their own boss or always wanted to make all of the calls. And don't get me wrong, um, I don't shy away from opportunities uh, to instigate and lead, uh, but I was pretty happy and pretty comfortable harnessing corporate resources in support of social, economic, and environmental outcomes. Like Amy, I'm from Seattle. And one of the things that has always been interesting to me is that also like Amy, I've lived in a bunch of different places. I grew up here. I went to college in the Midwest. I spent some time abroad in Asia. I worked in California before business school. I've lived on the East Coast. I spent some time in Europe. I mean, I've had the opportunity to spend time in a lot of different places. But when I think about the question, where are you from? My answer has always been, I'm from Seattle. My wife and I lived in DC for seven and a half years. But when people would ask me, where are you from? I'm from Seattle. I live in DC, but I'm from Seattle. And so it, it was really interesting for me moving back about five years ago after, like Amy, having been away, um, in my case, for almost 20 years. And processing the growth and the change that had taken place. And what really started to keep me awake at night were questions and conversations, not just surrounding the awe and amazement of the pace of growth and change and wealth creation, but conversations around who still had or has a physical place in our city, and just as importantly, who feels that sense of belonging. Now, I'm the first to admit that as a nerdy, overcommitted kid, I didn't do a ton of exploring uh, when it came to Seattle. You know, I didn't do a lot of hiking on the weekends. I was playing soccer. I didn't do a lot of exploring you know, all of the incredibly rich and culturally diverse neighborhoods. You know, I did my homework and went to sports practices and, you know, did what I was told. But I share that by way of contrast with what my experience has been since coming back um, and having the opportunity to experience and connect with community in a different way. And in my case, it's through the lens of small business owners and their stories. Um, and I, I guess I'll share that additionally, it has been a really healing homecoming in many ways, because specific to communities of color, my adolescent experience 
was that POC communities weren't safe. They weren't safe because my dad's white. They weren't safe because I'm gay. And so the opportunity to come home, to build new connections to people and neighborhoods more confident in who I am and to feel a greater sense of belonging and safety and acceptance has been an incredible gift. I think it's uh, amazing that, you know, I, I follow you on Instagram and LinkedIn and I see all these photos you take with uh, the products at all these different businesses all across Seattle and all the different communities and neighborhoods. The way you took this feeling of like not belonging growing up and then really dove into the idea of showing up for others uh, to combat that, to to really think about how you're not going to let that feeling just isolate you, but you're going to actually show up for others. Then you know how important it is to show up for others and what that feels like when Empathy. it doesn't happen. <laughs> you're going right back into your main ingredient. As we think about entrepreneurship, well, we have two entrepreneurs. And so uh, Shannon is going to uh, tell us about himself. So yeah, Shannon, we would love to hear uh, more about you. Thank you both so far for such an open-hearted, vulnerable share. Belonging is funny to me, if only because we're, we're not with, with, uh, with video. I think it stands to say I'm a, I'm a white, straight male. So it's funny to sort of approach the question of belonging, particularly in this time when we're growing more intelligent as a culture and a society around issues of difference and everything from gentrification, as Amy pointed out, to just the interpersonal sense of how I, how I show up and belong um, and accept it or not, as, as Lisa was talking about. I guess I'll point to sort of the duality that I feel around that, because despite being a white straight male, I also uh, am the child of two families who survived the Holocaust. And so there's this ability that I have to quietly seep into the background of the mass culture, but an inherent, enormous, deep, biologically inherited insecurity around the fundamentals of just who I am as a Jew. And it's really astounding sometimes when I think about how recent that atrocity was, because it's really easy, I think, growing up, especially to hear these stories and try to just put them out as other experiences and really make them distant. But my father was a hidden child, and he has memories that are real for him about that, which is amazing. And so there's something about belonging for me that's tricky in this way. You know, Jews have, in general, an enormous amount. They have enormous amount, period, right? Wealth and place and stature and employment and connectivity and all of that. And yet there is a growing and looming and seething sense of of othering that's happening with with all people of color as well as with Jews in this country and internationally. So it's disconcerting in some ways. So that shapes a lot of who I am. And it took me and is continuing to take me so far in all of my years walking around this planet to really figure out how I relate to that. And it's shifted over the last 10 or so to really embrace and accept that 
as opposed to the reaction that I used to have, which was to try to bury or disassociate or detach myself from that culture. So in the past, as things have come up with violence against Jews, whether it's in synagogues or you know shootings or just seeing swastikas around uh, painted on buildings, it was something that I did not connect with and try to relate to. Uh, I was a, a very dutiful uh, participant in the Jewish culture for my my father in particular, for whom it was much more important than for my mother, even though they both, both families went through um, the Holocaust. But despite being dutiful, I didn't really feel any connection to it. I think second for me that I think about in terms of shaping myself is and, and who I am in my background and how I think about it is, like Amy mentioned, those for, you know, forming, forming, forming years of when we're sort of literally cerebrally being developed from, you know, seven, eight, nine, all the way through to teen. My experience going through elementary school was really shaping of how I think about issues of equity and where I sit within this world. My parents being the good, open, liberal people that they were put us my sister and I into the local public school in, in New Jersey, uh, where we grew up in a suburb just outside New York City. We were the minority as, as white kids, and we were the minority in terms of having above average uh, means uh, relative to our classmates. And I think probably because of both of those things and just the nature of public school in that place at that time in the late 70s was really getting bullied and beat up and not learning very much, walking home and sort of being chased and called honky and, you know, physically getting beat up and things like that, my bike stolen and and all the stuff that just kind of happens to young kids sometimes, unfortunately. And so my parents took us out of public school and put us in the exact polar opposite environment in the local private school, where you had to wear a, a coat and tie and you had to shake the headmaster's hand and she wore white gloves and we had to take foxtrot lessons. And I went from being called honky and ridiculed for having too much, perhaps, and all of a sudden did not have the right clothes and did not fit in and did not have eventually the nice car that everybody got when they were 16 and went from feeling like I had way too much and wanted to hide it to feeling like I didn't have enough and I needed to get more of it. I never really wound up finding my group. I met wonderful people. I still think fondly of many, many people, but I really kind of felt sort of like a betwixt and betweener. And so schooling in that way really shaped me. And in that place, as it relates to New York City, that is to say that suburban town with its beautiful old deciduous trees and big yards, whether that was a common yard for the housing group or the individual single family home. And so straddling those two worlds, especially because New York is a city that is geographically uh, separated, right? You, you cross a tunnel or a bridge to get to it. And so there's this very stark line, especially before Sprawl had its next wave in the 80s and 90s. And to just feel both sides of that way of living and existing and understanding how we relate to density and to retreat from that as a, a fairly sensitive kid, not liking the stimulus of New York too much and kind of scared me and intimidated me. And to see the full range of how we plan and drive to and from experiences and then retreat to suburbia really shaped me, I think, as an urbanist and as also a naturalist, which I consider myself both to be. 
Uh, well, I thank you for that. I think uh, thank you for and thank you for all the guests for sharing your stories. I think um, a lot of times when we talk about belonging, the flip side of that is uh, the idea of othering, and sometimes we actually think about belonging more about othering, right? Like uh, the, the absence of belonging, or when we didn't fit in. So, Shannon, for you to talk about your two different schools and being, you know, other for having too much and then being other for having not enough. You know, Laura, talking, I know, talking with you, the idea of like coming from biracial families and a lot of my friends who are biracial, multiracial is like, do I fit into either any of my families or backgrounds or cultures? Like, am I fully accepted or not? Am I always like not enough for people? So it's a belonging is like, it is soup. Um, and that there is no one right way to make soup. There's no one right way to belong. And so it's also great to see like you all as like highly functioning adults like doing these amazing things that you're doing now uh, in the ways that you're doing them. And so thank you for sharing uh, personal stories. I really believe that even if this wasn't COVID, people don't spend enough time doing stuff like this to really like share stories and get to know one another really well. And that's uh, that's a shame, but I'm glad that we had a chance to do that. A lot of for me, belonging to is to know that you're not alone in anything. And I think the idea of being alone is very much like an American individualist like concept of it, that one's feelings is one's feeling alone. But through the interactions and conversations that I've had with strangers, I realize how much of our lived experiences connect us. And that's actually beautiful. Like, like, screw American exceptionalism. Screw this idea that you're the only one that's done something. Who needs to be the only one that does something? It's beautiful to get to share something with somebody else. And that's a big part of my life is trying to find that. Right. Like, I love this, like the idea of like, you know, like we kind of react to the others around us. And the more people from different places and different experiences we put in our own orbits, like the more brightly we will show for it in a way. So with that being said, and using that as like a jump off um, into the ideas of sharing our projects so that maybe we can also amplify, augment, and strengthen. Shannon, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what project you're working on? My biggest project of late is starting this company called Hatchback, Hatchback Cottages. And Hatchback Cottages is this turnkey solution for homeowners to have a cottage on their backyard. But the backyard cottage, even though it has all kinds of wonderful very forward, literal, technical benefits is this marvelous little positive Trojan horse of a, a piece of urbanism. And uh, among the things that it does, besides provide supplemental income and stabilize homeowners, besides increasing housing without, quote unquote, ruining neighborhood character, uh, besides the fact that it provides people strategies for aging in place. It turns on its head this allegiance we have to our individual sense of ownership of our property that our culture defines us by, that our, our country, by constitution and also economic system, et cetera, and land use policy and everything else, defines us individually as, which is we are, we are almost nothing if we do not own land. And it's harder to grow, it's harder to have, it's harder to, to become, whether that's interpersonally to feel like you've become an arrived or literally to become something else and get another loan and leverage your equity. So without land ownership, it becomes really difficult. And so we have this sense of, okay, I need to, I need to get mine. And 
Frank, you used this word earlier around hoarding. And we have this sort of hoard mentality of how do we, how do we get ours? And that is sort of happening amidst this very odd, ironic cultural ideal that we have of these picket fences and these neighborly interactions and all these things that we're supposed to be doing with one another that we now realize as we've been sequestered to our homes, we had not been doing at home. We had not been in our lawns having conversations over those fences. We had not been letting our kids play with the kids across the street once they decided that that was safe for their families, et cetera. We have not been interacting with each other and inviting people into our homes when we envisioned what our big dining experiences would be like at our fancy new kitchens and fancy new tables. And so this backyard cottage does all of those other things. It solves housing, it creates supplemental income, it creates strategies for aging in place, but then it also creates micro, micro developers out of each of us with the explicit intent of inviting a stranger to live in your backyard. And so it takes the thing that has been sort of heralded as the shining object of our society, which is land ownership. And it actually uses that to try to solve some of the things that we've been complaining about, which is that the city's growing in a way we don't like, but we don't have enough housing, so there's too much homelessness. And, you know, tis, tis, what are we going to do about it? And there's all this othering of that kind of problem, like how is how are electeds going to solve this? And it actually gives us a strategy for how to, figuring out how to do that. And the wonderful thing is, like, it's really actually something we know how to do really well. For better or worse, we know how to build houses. We've, we've been building them for a really long time in this country. And there's no crazy new innovative technology needed for that. Now, there's plenty of opportunity for prefabrication and all of that and issues of sustainability, which are really important to us. But we know how to lend on this. Banks, for the most part, know how to lend. It's hard. So we help homeowners get, get their loans. And land use policy now, especially over the last couple of years, has loosened, so it's really easy to do. So the financing and policy is starting to fall in place. And so uh, I've been working just very hard with a small uh, nugget from angel investors, figuring out how to create more housing with backyard cottages so that people can have more interactions with one another and start living as if they are creating the communities that they keep saying they want to have around them. That's amazing. I, uh, I'm not going to jump in. Any thoughts from the other uh, guests? What do you need? How can we help? In terms of how you can help, my gosh, um, that's such a generous question. I would love to speak to any homeowners that are interested in having a backyard cottage. I feel really passionate about this, and I'd love to help somebody have one. So share the news. I wanted to sort of not only give some space for both Laura and Amy to chat more about what they're up to, but I I wanted to draw a connection perhaps as a way to start there, which Mm -hmm. I have found it both very satisfying and also really disheartening how current COVID scenario has really shifted our relationship to space as it uh, as a um, dependence on the exchange of currency, a public space as the exchange of currency. That is the shopping, right? I, I have Frank's probably heard me talk about this, and time on the design commission I would talk about this. I I have long since been concerned about our reliance on retail as being the sole way we talk about placemaking, right? And how do we create more activation and more excuses for people to come out? is through the exchange of currency. And one of the things that I love, Laura, about what you've been doing is you've been saying, yeah, sure, come use that as an impetus. But like that's just the hook. And once here, once engaged, recognize the opportunity for social interaction. And 
the whole notion of the houses spilling out in New Orleans and the way, Amy, that you talk about your passionate right-of-way and just that notion of spilling out and that the idea of what I, I really love, the term loitering, um, because of the irony it has of the illegality. But I'm really curious about how you two might relate to each other in this regard. Like, how does the right-of-way, especially as we think about restarting, how does the right-of-way, how does getting to and from retail and what does retail look like and how do we use that as a way of connecting again and not necessarily just in this very binary of here's some money give me some good um, but in the way that laura i think you kind of are i assume have these visions for for fostering so i'm, I'm just really fascinated by the linkages there that i happen to see i don't know if you feel them but i'm curious your either of your thoughts on those my initial reaction to what you were saying shannon of course on the one hand, I think that we could have a rich conversation about some of the not so great consequences of American consumeristic culture. The way that I've been approaching this, though, is a little bit kind of flipped on its head. Let me give you an anecdote. Once upon a time, it was actually last week. I got a little notification from a Facebook group that I'm a part of that's focused on galvanizing support for what started with an emphasis on Chinatown and the International District and then, you know, kind of evolved from there. And the story that I saw highlighted a woman named Trin Ong, who is the owner of Mila K, a Vietnamese restaurant that has been a part of the Seattle culinary and cultural landscape for a pretty long time. And I didn't think, oh my gosh, I wonder what her favorite dish is. Where am I going for lunch today? I thought, oh, this is the woman who started the restaurant with her brother. And then they got displaced due to gentrification, but then they landed in Little Saigon. And wow, there's this call to action in this Facebook group, and it sounds like she needs support. And for me, the food was secondary. I think that in some ways, at a time when we've got this kind of booty culture that's been cultivated, I, I like really good food as much as the next person. And I think that it can be a beautiful expression and celebration of culture. That being said, if there's an opportunity to learn about and support another person in need, I don't need the foodiest of the foodie experience. Decent is fine with me. Now, it turns out that the food at Mila K is really good, and I was thrilled. So much of Intentionalist is a call to connection uh, that replaces the increasingly transactional nature of convenience-driven, technologically-enabled consumerism. And I think that what we hope is that by reminding people that it isn't just about what we buy, but who we support, we're going to spend money on any number of different things. And so Intentionalist isn't about spend more. It's about spend more intentionally in a way that supports people and communities that matter. 
I sleep okay at night in terms of evangelizing spending money, um, in part because, I mean, on the one hand, I don't expect anyone to go, you know, quite as extreme, I guess you could say, as, as I have by virtue of my day job. But what I hope that we can highlight are the many ways that Main Street brick and mortar businesses are so much more than the products and services that they sell. And that the food that we get to enjoy or the art we get to learn about or the workouts that I'm going to need to do a lot more of as a result of my uh, commitment to uh, supporting restaurants through takeout. The what is kind of icing on the cake, so to speak, uh, to the who. Laura, with that said, just as, as you asked Shannon, what can the listeners and the three of us, how can we support The Intentionalist? Yeah. Okay. I have, I know I should have three things, but I'm just going to roll with two because uh, I want to make sure that we <laughs> get to get to Amy. Supporting a more connected, inclusive, intentional economy and city and hopefully world. On the one hand, we talk about spending our money like it matters because it does. But what I want to start with is actually a way to contribute to that same vision without spending any money at all. It's May, which is AAPI Heritage Month. And one of the things that we created, uh, because we're punny and dorky, um, or at least I'm punny and dorky, and I'm in charge, is an essentially AAPI intentionalist activation, where if you go to intentionalist.com forward slash my dash intentional dash list, you can put together a fun little list of up to 10 of your favorite AAPI owned small businesses and share it out with your network. And that is a fun, easy, free way to show a little love and appreciation for the many ways that AAPI owned small businesses are an essential part of our communities. I would imagine most people listening to this podcast are aware of the unfortunately unique ways that Asian communities and Asian businesses have been impacted as a result of racism and xenophobia um, with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so our AAPI-owned businesses were the first to feel the effects and are still very much in need of our support. And that support can start with visibility and amplification and storytelling. Hmm. And then the second thing is our gift certificate program. So pretty early into the stay home order, I heard a lot of calls to support small businesses by buying gift cards, which makes a ton of sense, right? It's like a micro loan. Um, you buy the gift card today, the small business gets the cash they so desperately need. And then at some point in the future, you can redeem it or not redeem it or what have you. Great idea 
helpful mechanism. But there was a gap. And the gap is that during stay home, people are spending their money online. And many brick and mortar small businesses, and we were particularly attuned to those owned by immigrant families, um, but not exclusively limited to immigrant-owned businesses, right? But those businesses have physical gift certificates and gift cards, but didn't have any sort of e-commerce or online storefront. And so we built one for them. And so it's this kind of strange process of going to our website, going to our gift certificate marketplace and buying one or maybe many gift certificates that support brick and mortar small businesses in need. And then you receive in the mail, in some instances, kind of an old school gift certificate. Mm -hmm. And I would love to encourage the folks who are listening to take some intentional action. And whether it is about amplification and celebration by letting AAPI-owned businesses know that we see and support them and or by sharing your favorites with your friends in the event that they aren't on social media, some of them aren't. Or if you are able, go to the Intentionalist Gift Certificate Marketplace and purchase a gift certificate from any of the up above 40 diverse owned small businesses uh, who are selling their gift certificates. You can learn a little bit about the business and the process and know that we aren't charging any commission fees. So all of the gift certificate monies are going to support small businesses at a time when every dollar counts. Wonderful. The last thing I'll mention mm -hmm. is that what we're doing is based on all of the community submissions. Once a week, we update the community, essentially AAPI intentionalist. Uh, so we published the first one today. You can take a look and see who's in the top 10. Ooh. If we're missing your favorite or if you want to help your favorite kind of climb up the list, you know what to do. Nice. I like that you uh, base this on competition to really get into, especially uh, API uh, communities, uh, lack of uh, or, or strength and motivation. Yeah, there's an uh, option that will shame if you drop down <laughs> on the list. So that's yeah. also <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> You don't want to hear it from that auntie. So yeah, get on the get on those lists, everyone. Auntie is an um, illusion. She doesn't exist. She's just in our ear all the time. <laughs> to do better. Sorry. Do better. Oh, man. Uh, Amy, with that being said, I would love to hear uh, something that you are also working on. Yeah, I think I, I really actually appreciate that segue. And I love your very um, direct ask, Laura, because I think it's actually the project that has been consuming my last two months and eating into my sleep, like, why am I composing emails at 2am? I don't know. It's just that idea pops into that point in time. It just, you got to go with it. So outside of my full time job is with the with SDOT um, in public space management. For the last two months, I've been on loan part time to be the project manager for an initiative called Seattle Together. That's being led by the Office of Arts and Culture and Department of Neighborhoods. Um, but it includes several departments. It includes the public library, the park, the parks department, Office of Civil Rights. Um, really, 
what is Seattle Together? Seattle Together is the city's plan for social cohesion and civic recovery. Several weeks ago, the directors, Randy Ingstrom and Andres Mantilla, knew that they needed to be proactive and to develop a kind of framework because Seattle is really leading the nation, right? We were the first to come into this epidemic. How are we how can we chart the course out of this, recognizing that social isolation, depression, anxiety were issues even before we came into COVID, right? Not even knowing where it's going to come from. But also if we look at it as we're talking around who are the, who are the communities that were already hurting before COVID that are on the brunt end of this? I think you see that with the stark statistics on deaths, right? The African-American communities disproportionately affected by COVID. Well, if we unpeel that, we unpeel that, we get at a narrative and history of racism, economic oppression, white supremacy, it's, it just keeps replicating itself. And so if we do not think around, I think recovery, we have to think around both the economic and civic recovery framework, because we're never one thing. We live at very much intersections. So Laura, your example around Mila Chai is like a great example because it is While there is a business there, it is also a community. So what are the needs? How we approach this is the recognition that we're not coming out of this by playing by a single playbook that one one sector is going to solve this. It has to be cross-sector. It has to be Mm -hmm. collaborative. And I think one thing that I really enjoy about getting to be the project manager of Seattle Together is seeing, quite frankly, how the ego can be challenged and put on its side. So, so often where we meet and convene in our project leads and we are talking about how communities are already doing this. How can the city use its bureaucratic platform to amplify the energies that are already there? And similarly with philanthropy, the private sector, this is about how we can, at the intersections of it, work knowing that we're in unprecedented times and the problems that we're encountering, the solutions are not going to fall on any one shoulder. So what is Seattle Together? Seattle Together is multiple programs and initiatives through different departments that at its core is to amplify um, community efforts. We've already kind of soft launched with Make a Joyful Noise, that 8 p.m. I I joke and I now turn it into make a rageful noise. I just let it all out. But I think it's a really beautiful articulation of, of, of sound and connection to public art in your front yards. I don't know if folks have seen the public art team. There were um, 10 artists of color that produced beautiful original works on yard signs that we got printed overnight with messages of hope. And they're quite beautiful designs. There's designs in Farsi. There's this, and that we distributed. And what is, what is the impact of that? I mean, in one way, we could be cynical and say, well, that's just a silly, you know, plastic yard sign out there. But also, there's a physical articulation and messages that we've received on seeing that in the public right of way as a point of connection. And I think that that is like the same. I, when people make fun of this movement of TikTok, and like dance competitions, I'm like, you can't undervalue what that does for people. It's not perfect. But if we continue to compare to what used to be, we're just setting ourselves up for failure. <laughs> so we need to just like 
we need to stop pulling from the same playbook. We need to let our egos go. We need to be able to open up to the space. And that's where what Seattle Together is. It's what does social cohesion look like? And that's a very like academic word. And in the in how I've kind of talked around it is it is a mechanism for us to um, amplify the work that's already there, create new work, and challenge, I'm sorry, I get it, this challenge American individualism. Like what does a collective identity of Seattle look like? There are multiple strategies with that. So kind of also leading off of Lori saying, a part of that, our, our folks with Office of Civil Rights have been working with community leaders on an anti-hate campaign. So the mayor released a PSA last week. And so we're also going to have a, a website. And a big part of that is we want to use that to shine a light on the businesses that you're supporting. So how can we showcase that work? But we want people to go to Seattle together.org and submit those stories. Use the Seattle Together hashtag. So where is that nexus between civic and social? It does cross into economic, right? We do know that. And I think that that's as if we, f- we can frame it like that. And so I would love to work with you to get those stories out there. I think one of the things that I talk quite often is to manage expectations. I don't pretend that this is going to solve all the problems. This is not going to solve disaster gentrification. This is not going to end our public health crisis. What is it going to do? Well, let's try and figure that out. Let's grow that because I think that that idea of perfect idea of those things is that's what's really hindering us. I want us all to come into that thinking to break outside of whatever box that we've put ourselves in. A lot of it's more about how do you implement and how do you gather uh, an equitable group of people together and how do you listen to voices? And there's a lot of things there, but this idea of like a proof of concept, right? You don't, we don't need to solve all the problems at once, but how do we create a proof of concept that when different sectors and communities come together and pull together, that we can actually make a much more magnified change and uh, impact? And what's happened in the past is that Seattle's been notorious for having single entities or single uh, sectors or small groups of partners do very light work around collaboration, not true collaboration, but more transactional. And so transactional is not bad, but how can you elongate that transaction in terms of a relationship that really empowers it and makes it more than just a transaction at that moment, but creates a long lasting relationship. And that's a little bit about how we belong here, things about belonging and how that can really change the way we interact. And that can change the way we work together and that can change the way we actually have real impact on some of the big uh, issues that we have in our community. But with that being said, any last thoughts from any of our guests before we close the program? Uh, and Amy, maybe how can people who are listening and how can maybe the three of us help Seattle together? How can we amplify that? I believe that social cohesion starts with your every day. It starts with these small interactions and not undervaluing that. So. I think folks listening, and also it's clear to me that Shannon and Laura have a huge footprint and impact so that your reach is very far is, you know, I started this talking around where I, how I came from and my experiences and a few of the people who informed where I came from. One of the things that Jackie taught me again is how through writing letters, it, it challenged solitary confinement, right? We don't think about the power that we hold. How is using intentionalists and supporting a business in that way able to change our worlds? 
I think we can think about it like that and we should think about it like that. Not to sound like a like after school special PSA on kindness, but I, I, I see it. I see it all the time. And I think that that is beautiful. And I think when we live in these times where it feels like it's so easy to go down that dark pathway of like, it's all impossible. Everything shit's hitting the fan. It's all falling apart to remember that you're not alone, that that there is both digital, but analog ways to connect. So let Seattle together hold you and that there's a space for that. And there's multiple um, avenues to connect with that. Um, I want to close with a little idea around the, and, you know, Amy, you being in New Orleans and thinking about Katrina and how the levees broke, I think our levees here are broken and not the seawall physical levees, but the levees around belonging, right? And I think uh, the idea of hoarding and scarcity, the ideas around othering when things are, are hard or that times around xenophobia and, and, and racism have really been highlighted. But we also have an opportunity to, to rebuild our seawalls or to rebuild our levees, not the physical ones, but actually the way we can be in community with one another to we, how we can be resilient. And the fact that community organizations and community partners have led the way, as they always do, right, in terms of these amazing uh, feeding elders in Chinatown, right, and like the thousand bags of groceries that are being put together by community members, the, the, the funds that are happening for artists, the funds that are happening for undocumented folks. Um, it's community members that always lead the way. And how can the sec- other sectors really amplify that and augment that? And I think that's something that I think a lot about. So thank you, everyone for joining us. Thank you to everyone listening. Please subscribe if you can. And if you have any comments, please reach out to me at f.nam, N-A-M, at civic-commons.org. And for now, stay safe, build bridges, and remember that we belong here. Thank you.